0: All right, welcome back to the Middle Tech podcast. You've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones, and this is our 100th episode.
1: Special, exciting. Something it's, to celebrate.
0: It's something so wild uh, to think <laughs> we've been doing this for uh, a week every week for 2 years. is just, you know, wild, wild to think about.
1: Yeah, it's uh it's something I'm proud to proud to say, you know, I'm proud to say I'm part of the Middle Tech podcast, proud to say we've uh, remained consistent and kept on releasing episodes and pushing this thing forward. And I think we've provided something really valuable to the community by continuing to do what we're doing. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's one of our, you know, that's our biggest
0: goal is to push the community forward uh, and share stories and, and share, you know, these, these lessons and the failures and just everything that goes into entrepreneurship and technology, because mm-hmm. uh, that's just so important to share. There has to be conversation in order for there to ever be growth. Um, and that's what we ultimately want to achieve and provide the community. You know, we do this for you. So we definitely thank you for, you know, all the support, uh, you guys have, you know, shared the podcast so many times. We have an amazing amount of listeners, um, and it's just really, you know, awesome to see.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, just to reiterate that, like the amount of support that we get on social media as well, and just some of my friends that have engaged in some of the feedback, it's just really cool. Um, but yeah, so let's dive into favorite memory, you know, a hundred episodes in, uh, we've met a lot of people, talked to a lot of people, heard a lot of awesome stories, What's your favorite memory in, in the 100 epi- hundred episodes that you've recorded? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's
0: hard because, um, you know, the thing I, I want people to understand is, like, this is what I, mean, I do on a daily basis yeah. is just, like, talk about technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, this whole thing started just putting a mic in front of me and, and Nate because we, you know, I was already meeting with so many founders, and it's just, like, it's hard to pick out specific interviews. And it's just crazy to think, like, even when we were, like, there's a memory that I think of. It's like... We were down in Aruba, uh, some friends and I. We were just uh, at a bars late at night, and we were, you know, drinking. And it was just like naturally just started talking about technology. And then one of my friends was like, "Just put a mic on you, like just start recording. This is a middle tech episode." <laughs> uh, so it's just memories like that um, that really just kind of, uh, you know, all come together to, to make me think. And, and it's hard to pick one, but um, if I were to pick two, I'd say it's the John Wilmoth episode um, or the Dora Parish episode. Uh, you know John Wilmoth with Popula Ventures, for sure uh, has just so much wisdom and to sit down with him and, and hear his his wisdom and his stories was was awesome um, and then drew Parrish is just um I have so much respect for that guy he 's such a rebel and, and he 's so good at what he does um that it's it 's something to inspire towards as an entrepreneur mm-hmm. you know entrepreneurs are often you know charismatic and and often misunderstood and viewed as crazy people uh, by the community and that 's what I love about entrepreneurs is that they are crazy it 's almost an art form. Uh, Andrew
1: Parish was an artist in my mind, so um, I'd say those two are, are a couple of my favorites. What about you? Yeah, for me, uh, this one kind of became pretty relevant recently. My favorite episode uh, recording-wise was recording with Kobe Hastings um, because that's what led me to the job I have now. Um, you know, it was a pretty significant uh, episode as well just because we started using some of the nicer mics and trying to actually work on our, on our production side of things and uh, make this whole thing sound a little bit nicer, and then on top of that, I just I thought the the Kobe story was really cool, and he was he was really young as well. It was really easy for me to see uh, myself in his shoes, and then here we are. I'm wearing a Lead Realist shirt now, and I'm I'm working <laughs> at his company. So uh, that's probably my favorite, just because it's become so relevant for me. It's 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 changed my life all of a sudden.
0: Yeah, no, that's and hopefully you know I know we've provided that same. Uh, experience for a lot of our guests and people we've had on the podcast and we've made connections to people and and gotten help people get jobs and like help people meet their mentors like that's that's just so amazing so it's awesome that that's you know your memory as well um so on this episode let's get into this episode and talk a bit about you know who we have on because we couldn't have had a you know our 100th episode without making it a super super special uh guest and we had uh mike davis of apris on um and he's just you know a special entrepreneur Uh, He's an influencer. He's a mentor, uh, not only in the state of Kentucky, but around the world. You know, he's built Mm -hmm. a a world-class company. Um, And he's responsible for this whole idea of using, you know, knowledge and data for good. Um, A lot of companies in today's day and age, like Facebook and Google, um, and now Twitter is being thrown in the mix. They have all this data. They have all this influence. And people question, you know, what their motives are and if they're really, you know, using that for good. In my opinion, you know, they don't have negative motives, but just uh, by default, you know, there's going to be some negative Things that come with that that, that amount of responsibility, but Appress is truly one of those companies that was founded on using knowledge for good. Um, and just some crazy stats, you know, that he shared on the episode was, yeah. um, you know, they're tracking ninety five percent of all criminals in and out of the justice system uh, to keep people safe. Um, we'll get into that, but you know, ultimately he's trying to make sure that um, Appress is trying to make sure that anybody that goes to and from jail, um, that there are notifications sent to the correct people to keep people in the in the community safe. Um, they're tracking. Um, 87 percent actually they're not tracking but they actually helped reduce 87 percent of all methamphetamine use you know meth is something that you know blew up at one time is now you know kind of fallen but that that fall is largely attributed to you know apris Mm -hmm. Um, they put amazing technology in place that tracked uh, cold medicine which is a, a very popular ingredient for meth um, and they were able to reduce, you know, the use of methamphetamine by 87% around the nation. I mean, the fact that one company, you know, can help that happen is just unbelievable. Um, and then lastly, you know, one of the crazy stats that stuck out to me was 85% of all opioid uh, prescriptions and patients are being tracked. Um, so there's no, no doubt there's an you know, opioid crisis, you know, around the United States. Um, and APRIS will probably do the exact same thing what they did with meth with opioids. They're definitely on the track. Um, according to Mike. And it's just inspirational to see a company like that uh, create such a big difference. Um, and his story is just wild, like the yeah. craziest story. Even if you put his story up against like Silicon Valley founders um, that you hear stories about on movies, things of that nature, um, it compares to all of them. Like he's just got yeah. an amazing story, very humble guy. Um, and it's just, it was an awesome episode.
1: Yeah. I think uh, it's really important to emphasize the knowledge and data for good. Um, because you hear some of the ways that they collect all this data and you're like, good Lord, they probably know so much about so many people, but he really hit on, um, you know, the privacy, uh, that they provide over all of this data and, and how under, under wraps it all is and the, the HIPAA regulations and everything that they follow. Um, so it's really incredible what they've managed to do to bring down opioid, uh, you know, literally fighting one of the biggest, uh, crises in this area, the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mentioned this to you earlier, uh, after we recorded, I feel like this is literally an episode that could have been on how I made this or how I built this with the NPR podcast, just because it's such a big company. Um, and you know, admittedly, I didn't know much about it before we recorded with him. So it was really cool to dive in and hear how he built, how he built his company and, uh, you know, where it came from. The, the origin story of Appris is, is very cool. Um, how he met his co-founder. He's got some awesome stories. Uh, so we're really, really excited for you guys to get in and listen to this one. Well, let's
0: just, let's just get right into it. Let's do it. All right, welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. You've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones and as we said this is a very special episode. This is our 100th episode of Middle Tech so we wanted to make this a special one. Uh, Logan and I uh, realized that this was going to be our 100th. You know this time goes by so fast I think it kind of caught off, caught us off guard.
1: The Zoom meetings, doing them over Zoom is you yep. flyby. Jordan was just asking me how many we've done over Zoom and I was like I think I've lost count it just has become yeah. the norm, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, they're all blended together almost, but uh yeah, when we figured out it was our hundredth episode, we wanted to make sure we got a, a guest that uh is somebody that makes the hundredth episode super special, so we immediately thought of uh Mike Davis from Apres, you know, last time I went to Louisville, I realized and it was dark. Uh, I looked over and I saw the Aris building, uh the logo on the side of that tall building, and I really uh thought, well, we need to get that guy on uh on the podcast. And we had uh, John Wilmoth uh, uh, around that time, actually. It might have been on the way to Louisville recording with John Mm -hmm. Wilmoth. Um, And I reached out to John and said, hey, I know you know Mike. Uh, Can you give us an intro? So Mike, you are on his uh, special team of investment advisors there at Popular Ventures. Yep.
2: That's right. I am. I'm really happy to do that with John.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for joining, man. We really are excited to interview you today.
2: Great, I'm glad to as well. I, I've I've listened to a few of your podcasts. I I, I will admit I haven't been listening, but uh, I've gone back and listened to a number of them, and I'm kind of getting addicted to them. So I'm going to try yeah. to hear, it, watch, and listen to a few more of them. Oh, means a lot. Thank you.
1: Yeah,
0: it's good to hear. Let's uh let's jump into your background. Let's set the groundwork on what we're going to be talking about today. So talk about you know where you're from, uh, your education, and we'll go from there.
2: You know, I'm I'm a I'm a simple guy from the local area, right? I grew up in uh, out in Bullock County, you know, just a suburb of, of Jefferson County. Went to public high school, um, you know, went to U of L, went to speed school for a couple of years, uh, got an associate's degree. Was working on my bachelor's degree, but couldn't wait. I got out working with a small company and started kind of all I wanted to do was start stuff, and so I, I never even finished my bachelor's degree. Learned enough to write code and, and learned a little bit about business and dove in with a small local company and, and and worked there for about eight or nine years before I actually broke off and started this business. I started a couple of others in between, but nothing that really ever caught on.
0: Yeah. And so you had that itch from, from the beginning to to be an entrepreneur.
2: Yeah. I, I got in trouble in fifth grade for a buddy and mine. We started a, a comic book rental business that got a little out of control <laughs> in fifth grade and had to get shut down. So I knew the value of recurring revenue back then.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, Scale, scalability. Uh, that's awesome. So we had talked on the phone before we got uh, you on here to record. Just chatted, you know, heard your story and then got to know you a bit. Um, and I love the story of of where Apris, you know, really kind of originated, you meeting your, your co-founder. Um, so tell us a bit about that story because I think that's an amazing story. Uh, to kind of you know get us into that that side of the I think discussion. it's
2: a I think it's a story for our time because you know a guy like me should never have started a company like Apris and and to think that I did it with another guy who at the same time I'm graduating high school he's walking through the jungles of Vietnam to escape a communist country um, he survives a, an unbelievably epic journey through Cambodia only to land in a refugee camp for several years and then get brought by the Red Cross to Louisville um, you know, a few years after I'm out of high school, probably while I'm at UofL, and, and gets dropped into Louisville with nothing but the clothes on his back and, and a little bit of English. And for he and I to intersect you know, just a, 15 years later and, and be in a position to start a company like this is truly amazing in my mind. And it shows the power of what these first-generation immigrants really do in our country and Young um, who I'm talking about here, not only um, went to JCC, learned English, went to UofL, got a master's degree in computer science, and ended up landing at the same small company I was working at. We became great friends. We worked together for seven years. And when it was time to start this business, he and I were, we just knew that we were going to be a combination to go do something together. He's the most brilliant engineer I ever worked with. And, uh, and, uh, he and I just really clicked. And so the founding of APRIS doesn't happen without the two of us. It wouldn't have happened with me alone. I can tell you that. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. Talk a little bit about the founding of APRIS. Cause I know when we talked on the phone, you told this really pretty heavy story about the situation that, that got you thinking about APRIS. So kind of dive into that for our listeners and, and how it inspired you to start
2: it. Sure. Jung and I worked together for a number of years. We were really close friends, but we just we just, uh, both entrepreneurial, very entrepreneurial. And um, we had begun to study technology in 1993, 1994, that we thought could be kind of the core of a company. And, and it was all around computer telephony, where people were starting to put telephones and computers together to deliver information. The early indication of this I would give would be, you know, back in, around that time is when people could start calling all on their phone, right? Sounds crazy today. Kind of new and cool. And we we had been researching and studying and playing with this technology for a few months. And on December 5th, 1993, there's a young girl in Louisville, Kentucky, who's on the six o'clock news because she's been murdered on her 21st birthday um, by a guy that had attacked her over a different situation, had been in jail, waiting, going to trial. Uh, he made release from jail and was out for two weeks on the street before she knew. She didn't know he was out. And he wanted to kill her on her, birth, on her birthday. So he waited until her birthday and murdered her as she came out of her work at the Shelbyville Road Mall. And the next day, her parents were on the television, just on the news, saying the only reason she was dead is because she didn't know that that guy had been released two weeks earlier. So for us that night, we both came in the next morning and looked at each other and said, it's the exact problem we're trying to study. How do you take information in a computer and link it to people out in the public? And that would be through a telephone, right? Mm -hmm. And so we, that day, picked up the phone and called Jefferson County and asked what they were doing about this problem. It was a very big system. They were putting together a task force to study it, so we quickly identified some people on that task force. Began to meet with them and help them lay out a way to solve that problem through automation, where we could build a platform that would let people call in uh, when someone was in jail, find out who is there, and register so that if they get released, there's an automatic alert notice going out to let them know that person's back out of custody. And that was the beginning of the idea. Um, a few months later, the county put out an RFP, and we made up a company name, and wrote a wrote a response to the RFP, thinking we had almost no chance of winning it. And uh, one day we were out washing my car during lunch. You know, we went to lunch together. We drove through a car wash. And on the news, there's an announcement that our little company had been awarded the contract to build this thing. And we didn't, we were shocked. We didn't know it. And people, news reporters were calling us, wanting to interview us. And we were like, you know, they (laughs) wanted to come to our offices, which we didn't have. (laughs) They wanted to talk to other customers of ours, which we didn't have. We couldn't even remember the name of the company we had written on a proposal because we made it up an hour before we submitted it. So it was a total, like, shock to us that we actually won this. Um, so I was, I, I was so afraid to talk to the reporters that the next morning I packed up my family and we drove to Florida to get out of town so that we didn't, so that we could tell reporters we're sorry we're out of town we can't come meet with you, right? Yeah. And uh, but we won the RFP. We spent months in Jung's basement building the technology in the evenings and weekends, um, and the system got turned on on the one-year anniversary of Mary Byron's death, the young lady who was killed. And uh, it was a big media event, and uh, Jung and I, uh, you know, more or less, we're only viewing that as a way to raise a little money so we could go start our company. But it became clear to us once that system was launched that that was going to be our company, and so. Um, we immediately made a phone call to the only money we knew of in Louisville really was uh, chrysalis ventures had just recently started. Uh, and that was David Jones and his son, David Jr. And Doug Cobb senior, uh, Doug Cobb and his father, Stuart Cobb. And they put a very small fund of money together and they were doing private equity investments. And we called Doug that night on the phone and he was doing the dishes and, and, and uh, I called Doug and said, did you see the news tonight? And he said, uh, he didn't know me from anyone. I mean, he didn't know us. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, did you see that victim notification thing? That was me, who you know, our company who built it. And he said, okay. And we said, well, we'd like you to invest in it. And Doug said, well, send me a business plan and we'll look at it. And Doug will tell you the story. When he hung up the phone, he looked over at his wife and she said, who was that? And he said, oh, it's some guy. I'm sure we'll never hear from him again. And when I hung up the phone, Jung said, how did it go? And I said, I think we're going to get this money. I think this is a good deal. You know, I I just felt like it went great, you know. But we wrote a business plan uh, at that point. And, you know, in the the fall of 1994, uh, we spent a few weeks working with Doug and David and refining refining the plan. And basically, they made a small investment. I think the first investment was $350,000 that allowed us to quit our jobs and go open an office and begin to go try to convince other counties and communities to do victim notification. And mm-hmm. uh, all that happened very quickly. And, um, you know, we had no idea what we were doing and we had no idea how to do it. It was, <laughs> uh, it's one of the things I try to tell people. I mean, I don't care how good your plan is you write when you get write a business plan. The one thing I can guarantee with hundred percent certainty is it won't work out that way. Right. And and it's all about how you modify and adapt and and move that that determines winning and losing really. Yeah. And uh, so you know that was the early startup story for us.
0: And given you know you had mentioned that this is all just kind of coming together on the fly, you know with that RFP. Looking back, how did you how do you think you won that? You know, you, if you you said you don't know how you did, but looking back now,
2: I look back now and I know how we did it. Um. The RFP, we told them kind of how to build a system, but then it went to the government, and the government put a whole bunch of stuff in this that was kind of ridiculous. For example, the RFP required voice recognition, right? Now, this is 1994, right? There are a few little things you could do to help with voice recognition, but it was terrible. But they didn't want people to have to touch tone dial on the phone. Yeah. They wanted to be able to just talk to the system, and it was going to do what they asked right um and so a lot of companies that bid this there were four or five large companies that bid it and uh and they were they they were large companies they told the county no you can't do voice recognition here's how it's going to work, and no you can't do this." We were two guys with a made up company, and we just said, "We'll do everything you ask right so we we told them we'd do things that we probably couldn't do, and we were cheap i mean we did it for you know, I think our bid was $60,000 and I think we spent $40,000 on equipment and all we wanted to do was make 20 so we could go start a company. We were both broke. Yeah. And for us, that was going to be a big break. And, um, I think the other bids they got were probably five times our bid. You know, we could have probably bid way more money, but we were two guys.
0: Yeah. That's a hell of a story. It makes me think of the yeah. movie, uh, War Dogs. I don't know if you've seen War Dogs. But I haven't
2: seen that, but no, yeah. I haven't seen
0: that movie. Just the bidding the bidding process made me think of that. Um, so you had built this this database that tracks criminals going to and from jail. And at one point you had told us on the phone you were tracking 95% of criminals going in and out of jail. Crazy number. How quickly did you get to that scale?
2: Uh, it took years. It took years. I mean, the way when we started the business, we thought we would go every single county. There's 3,500 county jails in America, Hmm. and then you have every all 50 states have a prison system. That's a different kind of system, and then you have the federal prisons, and our thought was we'd go knocking on 3,500 doors, but we really quickly realized that was going to be very inefficient and slow. Uh, It takes a long time to sell to government, and you'll spend as much time selling to a little county as you will the state, so within a year, we realized the way to do this is to get to a governor, get to an attorney general and and sell one contract to go fund the entire state, and so today we have 44 of the 50 states that that hold contracts with us to do this throughout their entire criminal justice system. We also hold a contract with the federal government to do it for all the federal prisons, and so uh, that 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 took us probably 15 years to build that level of scale, but it went state by state. Every mm-hmm. year we were growing, we were adding four or five states a year. It's like in in our biggest years. Yeah.
0: And and then you then you started um uh, to say that you know now Lyft and Uber are using your service to monitor their drivers and understand if they have any criminal background or things of that nature. Talk about what how it's evolved and morphed beyond just that original idea.
2: Yeah, the, the the story was it's really fascinating how this happened because at first we thought we were a notification company. What we were getting paid to do was to call all these victims. But really what the hard part of our job was was collecting the data, linking the data and figuring out who people were, right? And that was where all the real magic was. And within a few years, we had five or 10 states that were using our system, and we realized that the, the people who really wanted that data more than the, even the victims needed it was law enforcement. So by 2000, we started to build a series of products that would let law enforcement study the data to figure out you know, when parolees are getting rearrested, when sex offenders were being in trouble, right? All kinds of uh, public safety necessary solutions were being built. And then one day, you know, about roughly 10 years into the business, by 2005, those law enforcement customers started coming to us and saying, hey, we need you to track people who are diverting cold medicine into methamphetamine, right? So we began building a platform that would let, let us record everybody who buys those medicines to figure out which people might be buying them in such quantity that they're probably doing something illegal. Right. And that system then launched us into retailers all over the country, it, uh, helping them make decisions about products. And it also draws drew us into um, the opioid crisis and addiction. So if you went five years further down the road, by 2010, we kind of had a retail set of customers who were asking us, figuring out what's going on in their workflow, who, which customers and and, and which employees might be stealing from them. We had, we had health customers who were starting to let us manage their data to figure out which of their patients might be becoming addicted. We had, um, you know, public safety customers. And so really we had woken up and realized we're not really a notification company. We're a data company and we study data and look for patterns and models that help people manage risk, you know? So that's, that's the foundation of how the company's organized today. We've got, you know, thousand employees, but we've got markets that we serve and we're very big in retail fraud and prevention very big in substance abuse and behavioral health and very big in public safety right
0: yeah and when we were speaking on the phone another thing you mentioned was a couple of statistics you know back you know you had said you had 95% of criminals being tracked you had said that meth abuse was down 87% at one point was and you said that a lot of that was attributed to you guys is that correct
2: Right, right. Because when uh, the biggest drug problem in America in two thousand five, six, seven was domestic methamphetamine production. People had figured out how to cook meth in little soda pop bottles, and they were being they were a, they were blowing up. They were killing children at home. They were burning down hotels, and it's all because uh, it had become very easy to go get a few ingredients, like you know c- c- cold medicine that contains pseudoephedrine batteries, Red Devil Lies, things you can go to a store and buy and and do what's called a cook. It's, it's basically the television show Breaking Bad, if you've never watched that. Uh, mm-hmm. And 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 so these things were all over our communities, all over America. Um, once we put a national platform in place to track the product, so if anybody's ever gone out and bought cold medicine that contains pseudoephedrine, they have to show an ID at a pharmacy counter. That ID is being submitted to APRES. And we're studying every purchase that's getting made nationwide. And we're helping law enforcement identify the people who are shopping around, moving store to store, buying an unusual amount of the product. So those very few people, once we cut them off, so to speak, where they can't go do that very easily, the domestic meth lab started coming down. And over about a six-year period, they went they went down about 87% and really have stayed low. So methamphetamine today that's being consumed is probably being shipped in through Mexico and other other sources but we've eliminated the problem of cooking that lab those labs in the US right it, very few times are you seeing that in law enforcement
1: today and that is that is such a huge thing too and especially when you apply that to the opi- opioid crisis that has just ravaged this area especially um, i think one of the most interesting parts of that is how many data points that you guys are collecting uh in order to connect all that and and give these insights to the to the state
2: so yeah, talk so talk, talk you, a little yeah so, go ahead so if you think about APRIS, the, you know, um people right now think about data companies, and a little bit negative connotation, wow, you know, Google and Facebook, and what are they doing with your information? We're definitely a data company. We have massive amounts of information, but our mission is called knowledge for good, right? Mm. We're not out trying to sell you something. We're not trying to change who you vote for. Um, our, our data analysis is all very highly controlled, protected under HIPAA, protected under federal and state law. And the data is used to keep people safe, to eliminate fraud or risk. Um, you know, it's really to make our community safer and better. Uh, so we're a data company, but the data is being used in a very protected legal way, right? So
1: I think that's a really important point to make, especially in today's day and age, about people always being nervous about privacy. But I think the way you guys are going about doing that and that specifying that, you know, this is all protected under privacy laws and HIPAA regulations, I think that's a very important point to make. Um, but I, I'm curious in, as to how you guys are collecting a lot of this data, um, specifically when you guys are scanning these these IDs, where is all this coming from and where is it being uh, inputted into and, and that sort of thing?
2: Well, when you track cold medicine, that data is being collected right at the point of sale in the pharmacy. So literally we have hundreds of thousands of point of sale systems that will scan that ID and send that data directly to us in a quarter of a second. We'll look at it. We'll make an analysis of the decision and let them know whether they should sell that to you or not, all within a quarter of a second. It's like having your credit card approved, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that data is managed in the cloud, protected under federal law. It is only used, that particular data set, um, pursuant to federal law to help identify diversion of the product, right? So we can't use that data to go try to market something to you, sell you Kleenex because you've got a cold, you know, things of that nature. We don't do that. It's only used under tightly controlled federal law. Um, then then if you move to like the who's incarcerated, we're on the J all of up institutions that send us that data near real time. And we link it and manage that on behalf of the states. Same on the opioid data. We're managing 85% of all opioid dispensas- dispensations that and we get those directly from the pharmacies. Highly protected by state and federal law. So the data we manage, it's all out there under our servers in the cloud but and, and highly secured, but it's only used within your healthcare system by doctors, just like other protected health data, right? Mm-hmm. So we can't, we can't, for example, there's a lot of things we could do with the data. Uh, we could We could, for example, identify you as having high risk of opioid addiction, tell your insurance company about that, and they change your rates. But that would be illegal. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. we're we're contractually prevented from doing it and and we're legally and and ethically prevented from doing it. So at Apris our mission knowledge for good, we every time we look at a new idea for data, it has to have three things that it passes. It has to be allowed under our contract with those people who give us the data. So they have to know we're doing it and approve it. Second, it has to be legal. So we check all federal state statutes to make sure that what we want to do is within the law. And the third thing is it passes what I call the 60 minutes test. Now that shows you how old I am because people today don't watch 60 minutes, but I don't want to be the guy on 60 minutes explaining to people why I'm doing this. Right. So, uh, if I think it's something that would people would just kind of cringe at, even if it's legal, even if my contract says I can do it, we're not going to do that. Right. We want it. We want it to fit our mission of knowledge for good, not just knowledge to make money. Right. Right. So, uh, that's kind of how we think about it.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you're collecting all this data. You're a big data company. This naturally leads to machine learning. Very naturally. I'm sure you guys have moved towards that. Um, let's pick up that conversation, you know, briefly here. And, you know, I'm guessing that with all this great data, you're able to recognize patterns and be preventative in some ways in some areas. Talk about, you know, how you're using this is with machine learning Angle.
2: I, I think that, uh, you know, the best example people can relate to on this, I, I do. We have a world-class data analytics team with, you know, dozens of PhD data scientists that are just brilliant. These are people that are uh, 10 times smarter than I ever hoped to be, right?
0: Yeah. Are they local?
2: And the, are they local uh, to Lexington? Uh, no, no most, of, most, of, most of them are on the West Coast, uh, but we do have a handful of them in Louisville, right? Okay. Yeah. The best example I would use would be the opioid, right? Uh, data so what we manage is we get a we, we have a way to collect all of the prescriptions that have been given to somebody from all the doctors and compile them together right but if all we did was when you went to an emergency room and the doctor and, and said your back hurt and the doctor pulled your records up and we just gave them a list of prescriptions imagine the analysis that doctor has to do well what's this drug do and is that How how much how much morphine equivalent is this again? This is an old prescription that's over three. You know, he would be applying all kinds of a judgment. We look, we build models that start with who died with an opioid overdose. Now, once we know that these are the people who died, we go back and look at their machine, their their our our models go back and look at their prescribing history and identify where the inflection points are. So we're looking at thousands of variables. How many prescriptions you have, how many they've been active, what's been your rate of increase, how many physicians are involved, how far from your home that prescription is being filled, how many pharmacies you go to. Thousands of things that our models will study, and and then they'll boil it down to a risk score. It's called a NARC score, and that NARC score pops up on the screen for the doctor, and it's just like giving you a credit score. You You go and apply for a loan, they pull up your credit score and pretty quickly can assess what your risk level is. That's what we do. We take all that data and we boil it down to a something where a doctor in 30 seconds can tell whether this is a patient that's totally not going to be addicted. Yeah. I'm going to write your script and get you out the door, right? You've got to hurt back. Or this is a patient who has a lot of opioids, but it's also because they have cancer. I'm going to go ahead and you're not a high risk. I'm going to write you this right. Versus a patient who that doctor instantly can see they have a very high risk and instead of sitting down and writing a prescription, they're going to sit down and start a conversation about how they get that person into treatment, uh, into behavioral health treatment, figure out how to get them onto a path of recovery, as opposed to just writing another prescription because they said their back hurts. right? Yeah. And, and this technology that's now being deployed by over 750,000 physicians on any given day are using this data that we supply. Uh, what we're seeing over the last few years is opioid prescribing coming way down. And last year was the first year we saw opioid deaths coming way down, right? So we are seeing the curve turn on the opioid crisis, and we do believe we're making progress by const- restricting these, right? That's amazing. Now the danger now the danger of that is when people are addicted and they can't get scripts, uh, the next move is to go to illeg- illegal drugs on the street, heroin, and others, right? And and there's always going to be a supply of that. So that's another. You know, really, you're pushing the problem further out, and that's another part of the problem we're starting to work
0: on. Yeah, it's just so amazing. I'm so excited that we, you know, have you on here today because that's world class technology being being applied to a really, really important issue and a major. I mean, you guys have such a great purpose behind your your company. Um, and we're so excited to have you in in Kentucky and, and Louisville. Um, talk about before we get into learnings because we always want to get into learnings, and you have some amazing learnings of building this world-class, this world-class company. Give us an idea of, of the scale of company you're now running, uh, employees. I know you're a private company. Yeah. So, so I'm sure you Yeah, can't cont- I'll, I'll, I'll tell you,
2: I mean, uh, yeah, look, Apres is a company that's, uh, revenues well North of a couple hundred million dollars. Um, you know, a thousand employees, 950 employees, I think is the number we're sitting at right now. Um, about 125 of those are in Europe. We've got an office in London, an office in Poland. Um, we've got about 450, half of our folks, a little less than half in Louisville. Uh, we've got satellite offices, a pretty heavy presence in Southern California, Irvine, Orange County, um, and then um, Burbank. And we got actually three office locations in Southern Cal. And then a couple of other smaller satellite offices that we have around the country. So uh, but we have a highly remote workforce. In fact, with COVID, we have a hundred percent remote workforce. And, uh, hmm. and, uh, you know, you know, I think offices are becoming a little bit out of fashion, you know? Uh, yeah. so we'll see. Yeah,
0: that's, that's, that's cool. Um, and I'm sure, have you guys seen accelerating growth now that big data is really becoming more and more important? Have you guys seen an acceleration or has it been pretty steady from the time you started?
2: You know, we've 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 always been a steady growing company, and when I say steady, I mean uh, we consider ourselves high growth. I mean, when you're we're, we're we're typically growing somewhere around twenty percent top line uh, a year, and and for a company our size, that gets to be reasonably challenging. But we are continuing to do that. Uh, one of the proudest things I've always had at AFRIS is there's a thing in Louisville, and it covers this region really of the fastest fifty privately growing companies, and the way it's measured. Each year, it's put on by business first, and the way it's measured is they look at your last three years and what your growth rate has been over those three years. Well, that and then the the the, win, the fifth top fifty are the people with the highest growth rates. Now that's really easy to do when your revenue is a hundred thousand and two years later it's three hundred thousand and you've got this great growth rate, right? It's not as easy when you're one hundred and eighty million growing to two hundred and ten million in a year, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, Appress is the only company ever that has made that list. All 20 years it's been offered, right? That list has been in existence. So uh, most companies make it when they're small, they reach a size, but somewhere along the way, they, they hit a little flat point. We've never had a flat year. We've grown every year we've been in business. Um, you know, even in d- tough economic cycles, we've been able to grow. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's we're, we're pretty, growth is in our DNA. Um, you know, new products are in our DNA. We just We just fight hard to grow.
0: Yeah, and and I just thought of another question before we get to learnings. Is it a recurring revenue model? What's your business model?
2: Yeah, totally recurring revenue. It's the smartest thing we ever did. About 90% of our revenue is recurring and that's really helpful, particularly in hard times. I mean, COVID a good example, right? Uh, You know, businesses like ours, yeah, we'll have some growth impact, but, you know, it's not like we wake up tomorrow and and our revenue's fallen by 50% or something, right? So, you know, it's a very uh you know robust business model that that creates high value in the market so yep, high, high recurring revenue
0: great okay uh we always want to make sure that the listeners can take away actionable things to learn from these great entrepreneurs we're we're interviewing so let's jump into some learnings um talk about you had put some notes here let's go through them one by one learnings that you've had from building Apris let's start with you know doing doing the best job uh that you can at what you know you do well
2: mm-hmm. Right. So this is one of the things I think a lot of entrepreneurs need to realize. I mean, uh, you have certain talents that make you that guy who starts the company or that lady who starts the company. And, um, you know, you're fearless. You might have product uh, talent. You might have sales talent. You might have technical talent. But as this company grows, you can't do it all. Right. And and a lot of entrepreneurs think that's their job is to be the CEO. Right. Well, you don't necessarily the CEO may not be your skill set. So as your company is growing, I've always believed you should do what your skill is. If you happen to be that super salesperson, go hire somebody else to run operations. Go hire a CEO, right? Do the thing that you are going to bring the most value to the company for and um, separate your role as an owner from your role as what you do day to day. And there's been times I've done, you know, I started this business and Young and I were co-CEOs. And then we went out and decided, hey, we what I was really great at was ideas and product and going to market with new things. Jung was a brilliant engineer. We went out in 2005 years into the business and we called Doug Cobb up, who was at Greater Louisville Link, and said, why don't you quit Greater Louisville Link and come be our CEO, right? Run this business. Doug had been a successful CEO. So he came and he ran Appris as our CEO for from 2000 to 2009. He knew how to do things in terms of building management teams and culture uh, that he loved doing. And what I loved doing was embedding products and going out and selling and, and meeting customers. And so uh, we were a great team like that. And then 10 years later, when Doug's ready to leave, um, you know, I, I was a different person. I had watched how that had happened. The company had gotten bigger, and I jumped back into the CEO seat. But immediately what I knew is I had to go hire people who did all the other things that I was weak at. And so just do the job you're great at and don't be hung up on your title. Um and, and it's gonna make you happier and you're gonna be more successful in your company.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important one because I think in today's day and age everyone wants that title of CEO and it's yeah. I think that's really great advice coming from someone in your position to say, take a step away from that and do what's best for your company and you know, realize what your strengths are and don't be afraid to hire out that position if you need to.
2: That that's right, because a CEO is just another job, right? At the end exactly. of the day, their skill set is you know, strategic and setting vision and helping build a team and all those things. If if you don't get into that and you're not great at that, go find somebody who is and go do what exactly. you do. Great.
1: That's perfect. Yeah. All right. This next one, uh, every plan will require some changes. Dive into that one a little bit.
2: Yeah. It's it's what I tell every entrepreneur. I meet with lots of folks with business plans and ideas and they're trying to get money raised. And the first thing I tell them is you got a good plan. What are you going to do when it doesn't go this way? Because none of them ever do. Right. People run out of capital. Things don't develop as fast as they can. They didn't quite get the market right. And the difference between failure and success is your ability to recognize that quick enough and then make changes, right? Uh, David, Jones, David Jones told me this uh, senior very early on in APRIS. He said, look, Humana started out, a, 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 we were a nursing home company. And then we became a hospital. And then we became an insurance company. We reinvented our company at different points throughout our cycle. And you have to have the courage to say, hey, where we were going is not the right place. Let's now go over here, right? And successful entrepreneurs have a ability to identify when that needs to happen and the conviction to just encourage, really, to go do it and make those bold changes. And so, you know, your plan is a starting point. Don't think of it as something that you're married to so much that you ignore what's happening around you, right? You Constantly should be assessing, really working, be prepared to make a change. Yeah, is there? You a, will make changes if you're going to success.
0: Do you think there's a way to accelerate that discovery and realize we need to make changes? For instance, what came to my mind was maybe you could accelerate that and adapt faster if you're talking to customers more frequently. Do you think? I think a way customers
2: to... are the key. Absolutely, yeah. I think. So many people who are in charge of the plan aren't talking to the customers. I think it's really, I think a lot of founder teams work out this way. And, and, and Jung and Ma's case, he he was the brilliant inside guy who, who could build anything and make the tech work. I was the guy out talking to customers. But the two of us, while I was out meeting with customers and, and having meetings and conversations and learning, I was bringing it back to him. And the two of us were discussing it, right? It wasn't just me. Saying, "Oh, the customers are saying this now. We got to go do that." It was me bringing the feedback back, but we we were we were learning our business through our customers' eyes, and I think that's really great advice.
0: Yeah, no, it makes a ton of sense. I'm I'm currently going through that right now. We've set a goal as as a startup to talk to 150 customers a week, potential customers that we haven't talked to yet. Ask them, you know, what what are you currently using? What are your pains? What do you wish you had? Uh, we're just collecting that data and feeding that into the product and going you know, to use that to go to market. Um, but that that's what came to my mind first was can can you accelerate that adaptability um, rather than just have it come and maybe surprise you at certain points?
2: Yeah, and, and I believe that's really important as many customers as you can talk to. Because, look, the the one of the challenges is the first customer who buys what you're selling is, is oftentimes um, it's that early adopter who feels like they like to be first. And if you're not careful, you'll convince yourself there's a market where there might not be. Selling at once is important, but but doesn't guarantee success. Yeah,
1: makes sense. Yeah, so let's move on to this next one here. Um, You're talking about focus. Focus is critical, especially in the early stage. What are your learnings there?
2: Well, in the beginning, I think people often... you know, they're, it's a little bit out of desperation. They're, they're trying to figure out everything they can do to, to make the the dollar. Right. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, but I, I really think you have to, you have to focus on one thing. You don't have a lot of resources in the beginning. And if you let yourself get too far off the path where you start chasing everything that looks like you can make a little money, you will, you will end up, um, you know, not going after the core idea you started on. So you got to have a lot of discipline and focus. Uh, you know, an example is, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs love every product that hits their brain, right? And if, and, and if you're not careful, every, every time you have that next customer conversation and they say, well, I really don't like what you're telling me you're selling, but if you could do this, that might be interesting. If you're not careful, you start building a lot of one-off things, right? Uh, and you might generate some money but you're, you know, you're, you know, you're not really taking your precious resources. Just because you made money on the project doesn't mean that you, uh, you know, it's something you should be doing, right? Yes. There's an opportunity cost when you have that engineer develop something for a customer just to make a buck, right? Totally. When it, that person could be spent developing your core solution out that you're trying to do. So I just think focus, particularly early in a business, uh, is really important, not getting spread too thin, trying to do too many things.
0: Yeah, Well that makes a ton of sense. Because then you end up, then you don't end up with a product at all. Then it's just whatever. Yeah, or, anybody wants. And,
2: and look, I'm, I'm not telling you this is stuff that we did right because we didn't. And uh, I look back, and I, these are lessons I, I take serious. But at the time, we did a lot of this. I mean, we would, you know, we were just so desperate to make a nickel. In those first few years, every that a customer paid money for that was fifty thousand, they're gonna pay me a hundred. Let's go do it. Uh, And what you end up with is a bunch of one-off projects that you can't maintain that, that same engineering time had it gone into your core solution would have made a lot more sense. And, and you got to figure out a way to unwind all that someday too. So uh, it's, it's a tempting thing to do, but, but stay on your, stay on your path of what you're trying to deliver to the market. Yep. Makes sense.
0: And, you know, last lesson here that you had, you had written down is um, there's never a shortage of capital. If you've got talent a big market and a good plan, the capital will be there. If you can't find capital, you're being turned down. One of those things is missing. Talk about that.
2: Yeah. You know, I actually, I say this to people a lot because they always are are talking about, I, whenever somebody says Louisville, you can't get money raised, right? I'm like, that may not be the problem. Might not be your location of Louisville. It might be that you just don't have a great plan or the market you're chasing is tiny. You know, investors don't want to fund lifestyle businesses. And so when you see a plan that shows, I'm going to I can do 200,000 this year but look in 4 years I can do 2 million dollars uh it feels lifestyle right and uh uh I think t- to to me the, the the private equity world is exploding with capital right now Toma Bravo just announced their new fund they're raising is 16.5 billion dollars the two investors in Appros today clear Lake uh out on the west coast in LA and Insight in New York both raised funds this past year and closed them. I think Clearlake raised uh, nine, uh, seven million, and Insight raised not seven billion, and Insight raised nine billion. Right? Um, th- there are hundreds of billions of dollars flowing into these private equity markets, and they are hungry to deploy capital. Right? Um, and 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 so not all private equity are are with those size funds, but there are plenty who like to write 5 million, 10 million, $20 million checks. The issue is most of the time, they've got to look at the person. They got to look at the plan. They got to look at the market. Is it big enough to be interesting? And, and if they're not about all those, they aren't going to write the check. So I think are a little bit Naive about that, they they think they they can't possibly believe they're not the right person or the plan's not right. Uh, they just believe in it passionately, uh, and so they just want to say, "Well, I'm not getting funded because there's not any money in Louisville." I, I I don't believe that. First of all, I think in today's market, you don't even have to get your money in Louisville. Yeah. If you've got a great plan, I'm telling you, the money out on the coast will come to Louisville. We got lots of examples of that, and businesses in Elizabethtown. You know, uh, uh, the Bowers their their business was was funded by the same investors, Bain Capital, that funded Apperson back in 07, right? Um, those big East Coast funds will come to Louisville if they've got great businesses to, to write checks to, trust me.
0: Yeah, we had that conversation with, with John Wilmouth. Very similar conversation. Great conversation, very important one to have. So I think you're right. You know, when we have a lot of entrepreneurs on this on this podcast in their early stage, we always ask, and we'll get to this with you as well, but, you know, what, what can improve with the area? And oftentimes what we hear is, well, I can't find capital, or I just feel like it's not here. Um, and we had a great conversation, kind of you know debunking that in a way uh, with with John. And you kind of echoed those those thoughts.
2: I, I, th- I think both there is capital here if you've got the right business. But I also think if you got the right business and you're not having any luck here, fly to New York, yeah. right? Yeah. F- fly to California. There's there's plenty of private equity folks out there chasing hidden company in flyover states, right? uh you, you know don't stop in louisville if you if you've got the right plan and the right talent and the right uh market so
1: cool, yeah. so you were hitting on some a lot about louisville capital there so let 's dive into what is louisville doing well right now
2: mm-hmm. you know i'm seeing i'm seeing the beginnings of a recognition of tech in louisville uh I think that's been something we've done really poorly we've really marketed our city as manufacturing and you know bourbon now all of a sudden has gotten all this attention uh, and we have not done enough to to focus on tech companies in Louisville there have been some major successes I mean if you look at this uh Zermed which has now been merged in, in, in a transaction a year ago for over two billion dollars with with uh, uh, this new star that that's a uh, that's an amazing event that happened that grew in Louisville apris is an amazing story in Louisville Uh there's other terrific companies El Toro and And Edge Analytics and Genscape, back with Sean and and, uh, uh, Sterling, started. That was about like the same time as Apris. So we've had our share of really exciting tech companies, and we just kind of don't talk about them much. And there's not enough uh, uh, recognition of that. And so a lot of what my message with with, uh, GLI and others who are trying to promote the city is – We need to talk about tech in Louisville because we've had some good success and, you know, and we need to get the university to focus on how we fill more talent for that and and some stuff like that. But, um, uh, you know, I I think it's about deciding who you're going to be and deciding you're not just going to be, you know, about distribution and manufacturing and healthcare, Right. Which are kind of what we we tend to talk about.
0: And we're trying, you know, we're really doing our best and and really trying to push that that conversation forward and, and bring more awareness.
2: Yeah, I was just agreeing with you. I think these oh, kinds of podcasts yeah. are great. And there's a, there, yeah. there are a few things going on.
0: Yeah. And, and it's funny because like with uh, with the Zermed story, I really didn't know about that till John came on the podcast. And it's funny because ever since we had that conversation, I actually had a friend show me a picture of, uh, we have somebody in E-Town uh, that we know who's just building this this castle. And we were like, well, what in the world? And he goes, yeah, that, uh, he had invested in Zermed. And I said, whoa. Zermed guy. <laughs> yeah, Zermed guy. And I thought that was so funny. It's it all just to come together. Um, so you said what Louisville is starting to do well, which is, you know, the, t- the discussion about, you know, tech is starting to become more prevalent. They're wanting to move more towards that direction. Where are you seeing Louisville um, is needing to improve? What, what are some things you think it needs to do better?
2: I, I, I you know, I sat in on some, some, co- uh, some task force and some, some committees with GLI this past year. And I think the biggest thing Louisville, you know, could do better, is um, uh, get a little more centralized control on our economic development policies, and what we've got is a bunch of different little entities overlapping each other and trying to do a lot of the same things, and and because of that, and, and they all are little organizations that, you know, have various aspects of economic development, and they're all funded through various ways, and none of them want to quit doing what they're doing. But we need to centralize and put some more weight behind who owns economic development. I, I, I personally think, you know, give GLI more of that job. But I don't think that's likely to happen right now in the environment we're in. Um, and and because of it, you know, um, the biggest thing Louisville needs is the business community to step up and come together and start driving our economic policy. Because right now, we're, the government's not going to be able to get that done. Um, and when you had guys like David Jones Sr. in the community who could just pick up a phone and dial a few people and suddenly raise a bunch of money and take on something, he was this super strong guy that for a long time could, could make big things happen. I don't know who that is right now. And we almost need to bring uh, a, a coalition of our business leaders together and figure out how we're going to do that collectively how we're going to drive economic development policy and not wait around for the administration or the mayor's office or gli or somebody else to do it but um you know it, yeah. it, it that feels right to me anyway
0: i was going to ask you know you you had alluded to that is is there a group of entrepreneurs that come together and really influence these decisions because in my mind those are the one those are the people that actually need to be really driving most of the discussion and the government really needs to be there as a listening people that just listen, you know, the people that are actually making the business decisions need to be the ones that, you know, help inform it.
2: Yeah. This is something I'm woefully, um, um, you know, inadequate at because I've been really focused on this company for a long time and I've, I've not done enough to get involved in that. I I will tell you some, there are some CEOs around town who are working together with Endeavor and some organizations like that to try to build that kind of uh, coalition And, you know, I I am going to try to get a little more involved in that, but um, I I don't think it's very far along right now. I think it's just a handful of folks kind of informally doing it and we need to get it, um, uh, you know, we need to figure out how to turn it into something a little more substantial than that.
0: Yep. I imagine, you know, the busy, you know, entrepreneurs are busy. I imagine that's one of the biggest biggest obstacles, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they're very busy. They're all super busy and they're all focused on, you know, getting something done and, and and so that time it takes to put into those things is something they just got to decide they're going to do right.
0: Yeah, 100%. Okay, we always want to end on a positive forward-looking statement from all of the entrepreneurs we interview on where they see their given market going. And this is Louisville. You're in Louisville. So talk about where you see this city going in the next, let's say, five, 10 years.
2: Yeah, I, I'm... I'm... Louisville is teetering, right? You know, isn't this relevant community in the top 50 cities in in, in, the, in the US or not? And I think there's a few things that, you know, every time I have hope that, you know, we're gonna we're gonna take that step forward. You know, you see things like Top Golf, where we've been talking about Top Golf in Louisville now for three years and we can't get it done. And every city I drive by, I see top golf, and I'm thinking that that's an example of something that shows you can, you know, uh, you know, young people are into it and all that. And we can't do it because we find some old neighborhood who wants to file lawsuits and stop us. And we allow that stuff to keep happening over and over, you know, and uh, you know, I see examples like, um, you know, you know, we've had our chances in the past. I hope we still might be able to do it in the future is, you know, get an NBA team to Louisville. Let's step up and get pro sports here in some way. We've got the women's soccer now coming. That's a little hopeful, but I think Louisville needs to get its act together in the next five years or it could go either way. It could take a step forward towards Nashville, uh, you know, and some of our competitor cities that, you know, I I would like us to be more like Charlotte. Um, You know, we got to get our air service improved, more direct flights, you know, things that I know we've got people working on and we're making progress. we got to figure that out. Um, But if we, if, if we're sitting here in five years and we haven't done those things uh, you know, I, I, I could see a scenario where we become a lot less relevant as a city. You know, we, we, You know, we are definitely right on the edge right now, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, we get that sense, too. Yeah, we definitely get that sense, too. And um, I agree, you know, if we can, and I especially agree on the sports team. I would love, absolutely love a professional sports team here, especially like NBA, because growing up as an NBA fan, I just had to follow players, you know, like I had to follow Trace McGrady, Kevin Garnett, LeBron. Well, I never had a team, No, right? Yeah.
2: So like there's this NBA to Louisville. Thing that's underway in Louisville and I think it's an organization Steve Higdon's leading Dan Essel's leading and I've been talking to them and one of the things I want to do and, I'm, and this is again on me I haven't done it yet I'm getting I'm hoping to do that this summer though is to organize the tech companies in Louisville to come together and show a sign of support for NBA to Louisville right because if that opportunity shows up in the next few years for the league to expand Louisville is in the top three to five list that's being mentioned right how do we get ourselves on that list and get that because we uh, we got the arena we've got lots of things going for us um, but that's the type of thing that starts to show we can move forward right yeah. and uh, i think i think it's such a uh, it would be a such a statement that we you know we are a real top 50 city uh it, it would just give some energy to the town right and uh but if we if we're apathetic about it and we don't really care and we don't put any effort into it when that time comes and we miss that out you know it's just another example of something where we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot i think
0: yeah do you do you you know do you view this as a as a very opportune time and you know once in a you know lifetime opportunity to attract talent here given everything going on in major markets and maybe there's a bit more fear to live in a major market and, a, and an inconvenience that comes with being in a major market for Louisville and Lexington to begin to attract this talent from the coast what what are your thoughts on this opportunity
2: i th- i think so you know we've always sold louisville with one main message, oh, it's inexpensive to live here, it's affordable right yeah. and and that's an interesting message and and look, I've had engineers that work for Apppers in California move to Louisville because they want to buy a house right i've mm-hmm. I've seen that, and that that's nice, but I got to tell you that doesn't excite a 25, 30 year old kid coming out of school that oh, it's affordable, right? What they want to come to is a place that's cool to live, that's got that new vibe that has a tech culture uh that you know I like the bourbon theme, I think that's cool. Uh, we got to get our vibe about us. You know, Nashville has a vibe, and, and Louisville's – I think the bourbonism of Louisville helps with that. Uh, and and it's – I think inexpensive to live here is a nice to have, but that's not what's going to draw young people to Louisville, right? It's got to be like Austin. It's got to be like no. Nashville, places like that, that that are exciting. It's where I want to go be a part of, right? And so, uh, you know, and I think that's why like things like an NBA team uh, things like having a vibrant tech culture are going to do more for us to make us a relevant city than, uh, than announcing, you know, another expansion at UPS, right. Or something like
0: that. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining, man. This has been an awesome hundredth episode. Uh, you can just hear the wisdom and everything you say, and we really appreciate you coming on. So thank you very much.
2: Absolutely guys. Thanks for everything you're doing. You're doing all the right things to help get this culture going.